This week we've got Matt Diavella, who has a wonderful podcast that you probably listen to, because I do, and I think everybody that follows me does. So uh, if you don't, go check out The Ground Up Show. Welcome, Matt. Thanks, man. Excited to be here. Yeah, no, I'm glad we can do this in person, too. I mean, a weird thing about guest podcasts is that, like, people are kind of dropping in on the first meeting of people so often. And I think, like, don't even mm. necessarily realize it. It's like, we only talk for five minutes before this starts, and then you have to not talk about too any, anything too interesting so we don't... Yeah, lose it for the that's show. That's the hardest thing to do is when you have somebody come over your apartment and you're about to do a podcast. It's the the art of the small chat. You you can't really say anything too interesting yeah. because then you're like, well, that's good. We're gonna waste it because I I don't want you to have to re say that thing later <laughs> on. So I kind of have a, a thing where I usually make people coffee. So usually it's conversation around making the cup of coffee and it helps to kind of. I didn't offer you any coffee. <laughs> yeah, you know, you blew it. <laughs> all right, well, <laughs> that's all right. I've already we'll try again next time. Thanks for coming. We'll, uh, <laughs> yeah. Start over. So your show, I feel like like a theme I, I'd love to go over a bit with you is like I feel like your show has a lot of good hearty healthy information for living a balanced life. And I cover a lot of fluffy technology that you don't really need to buy, <laughs> but is really like fun to, to, to talk about. I also know that like, you know, you like filmmaking and you like good tech and good gear as well. And I'd love to explore that intersection a bit of, we all want to buy stuff. We all do own things in the end. But you approach life with this minimalist attitude. And like, how do you kind of find this balance of like, Buying cool shit and not being obsessed with it. And yeah, I don't know. I want to go all over with that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely complicated, and there's definitely a push pull. And in the past, I've certainly been the person to say, "Well, I can't make this video what it truly could be if I don't have that 50 millimeter prime lens, or I don't have that 24 millimeter, or I need this overhead jib crane to be able to really make this video what it could be." And then you get it. And then the shoot goes along, and then you realize, oh, I actually didn't even use that thing. Like, you know how many <laughs> yeah, right. pieces of gear I've purchased that I never use? Like, handy, what are the, um, those, the old stabilizers, the glide cams? I had one of those that never got used, and I sold, yeah. Yeah, and it's, um, I think that's going to happen, because I think sometimes we're just wrong, and we're off about our assumptions. Mm -hmm. But I think it does take you to question yourself and question what is it that you really need to make an amazing video or film. And I think we have to constantly push ourselves to, to make better stuff. The one thing that I find across a lot of YouTubers is that they kind of only see themselves as YouTubers. Like I'll talk to them like, well, no, you're an actual filmmaker. Right. Yeah. Right? yeah. Or like you're an actual photographer. Totally. I'm sure you get that too. I just think that difference is so strange that they put that wall there. Yeah. That doesn't really need to be there. Cause like they're doing it. They're making films. They're taking photos. Yeah, like what does the platform have to do with the content you're making? And in a lot of ways, I think that may actually get people to produce content that's not up to the level that they could actually create. Because it's like, well, I'm just a YouTuber. Yeah. You know, you can actually, it's a platform. Film is a film, a view is a view. Like you can actually, I think, push yourself to, that's how you're actually going to be able to stand out and create something new is if you stop seeing yourself as just a YouTuber. Right, no, and I, like something I'm always pushing back against is, a good idea that I think sometimes is overrepresented that like you really shouldn't worry about the gear because the gear doesn't make the product and focus on the art form, focus on lighting, focus on technique, which is all an important thing to talk about and it's completely true. But it's, it's sort of so easy to say that, that I think sometimes people forget that the creators you're looking up to and you admire their work and you love their work, they already did the homework of knowing how to use the the technology and the camera that they own and they like 
there, there's this like balance of you need to do all this research and then it can come like super easily and then you can focus on the craft. But if you're constantly like fighting against using your, the product in front of you. So, I mean, there's this line I often draw where people talk to me about like the art of photography because I do photography for work, but I always look at it as so much more of a, like a craft or a service compared to say like painting. Like if you're a painter or an illustrator, you can literally pick up a stick and draw on the dirt because your skill remains. And in our world, we're much more dependent on these complicated tools. Yeah, I've actually heard people say that nobody's asking the top writers what their pencil is or what, you know, what laptop they use. And it's like, well, it actually makes much less difference what their pen is or what their laptop is yeah. than what lens they're using because that, those are the tools that we have to create with. And I think actually, like, if you look at some of the greatest artists who are painters, they probably put a lot of care into the canvas that they get, high-quality paint, to make sure that they have the, all, like, the certain amount of brushes that they need. So I think it's part of it, and I think to just ignore those things in terms of just for the sake of, oh, story is king, then I think you're actually, you're kind of missing the point. And also there's a lot of fun. <laughs> then there's a lot of joy in tech gear and actually being able to test out and try different lenses and see what different look you can get. Yeah, no, I mean, those those quotes are kind of easy to throw out. Another one that comes around in photography all the time is like, oh, like I love that photo that you t- took. Uh, what kind of camera do you use? And the comparison is like, I love this meal you cooked. What kind of oven did you use? And I get it. Like, I know why. It's super quotable. It's fun. Like, it's a fun thing to say. And I, I, I get the analogy. But like you said, it's, I think, a little skewed and not quite representing the truth of, like, understanding the dynamic range of a camera There's and, and the color science and the lens selection and all the things that go into it. There's a lot more variables than the heat that an oven reaches. Mm. And, you know, the, like, there are more technical attributes to to understand. And so, I don't know, maybe I'm just think, justifying all the YouTube videos I watch. No, no, I completely agree, though. But I think that the most interesting thing is understanding, like, what is better? And I recently, is it MK, MK, I'm, I'm, MKBHD? MKBHD. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't say it out loud very often. <laughs> all I see it as, like, a, a thing. But I've been watching his videos a lot lately, and he did the the blind iPhone test, or the blind, sorry, the blind camera test of all these different smartphones. And when you look at that, you you it's hard to figure out what is actually better because there's a brand name, right? If you're buying Sony or you're buying Canon, you have a certain expectation of what you're going to get, maybe a certain kind of look. But then when you're, say, blind taste testing coffee, like can the expert even pick out the best brand of coffee or right. what would be like organic, old blind or whatever? So it's, it's, it's hard to kind of understand what is better and what actually makes the difference. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a certain amount there that's, it's kind of up to the viewer to decide. Right. Well, and I think that that video is a great example of where lack of understanding can make life harder for you because uh, looking at those samples as somebody that that works with photography and, and, and video, the, my first thought is people are making the choice based on, you know, the color and contrast that they see that is completely a choice afterwards. Like I edit everything that I post. I'm never posting anything that hasn't had the contrast slightly boosted and the saturation reduced or what like I move everything around the way that I like and that has the biggest impact on how people respond mm. to your to your image or to the photography or whatever that you've created. And um so to just look at the first thing that came out of the camera is to kind of miss the point about what people are actually 
reacting to when they look at the image. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. I mean, when you post a video, like your stuff's graded and it looks great because of it. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of people actually recently got surprised because I did a, a little behind the scenes video for Patreon about how I color grade my videos. And a lot of people were horrified that I didn't use video scopes and like <laughs> how simple my process actually was mm-hmm. where I simply have one LUT that I found that I really like right now. And then I just copy and paste it to every single project. Right. And then I just tweak by eye. And for me, that works. And I think that's part of like, it's an intentional decision that I've made that I know that I could spend three extra hours color grading every video that I'm making. But when I have a deadline of once every week I need to upload a video, right. you're going to have to figure out a way to make that efficient. Yeah. And I also know that too, like everybody's looking at it at a different from a different screen. So what somebody might see it may be completely different depending on what screen you're viewing it on, whether it's a desktop or you're you're watching it on your phone. So that's kind of my approach is just to make it good enough and then put it out there. And there's like a whole discussion on this about like perfectionism and like when to take it too far, when to know when something's done and ready to ship. Well, it reminds me of how legendary cinematographer Roger Deakins works, that he basically has a LUT, this one, and it's like choosing a film stock. Mm. He chooses it before the shoot, shoots for that LUT, and that's effectively what the grade is at the end of the movie. There isn't all these decisions made later. It's like he made the decisions on set, and since he's a very famous cinematographer with a lot of power, he's Mm -hmm. able to sort of kind of force the production to use that by the end. And so, like, he knows what he's shooting, and that's what it is in the end. So I'm just saying you're the Roger Deakins of YouTube. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, that's probably the nicest compliment (laughs) I've had. Uh, People were horrified, though, about that. And I think it's just because people have expectations about what goes into something. And a lot of times when you, you look under the hood, you realize it could be a lot simpler. But I think it does start with having a, a good eye. And like, I've been doing this for 10 years. Yeah. So for me to be able to just do it by eye, it's a little bit easier than somebody who maybe is just getting started out. So I think those tools are valuable. And I think it's helpful to experiment and, and play around. And I'm sure you you have a similar experience where you look back at projects you made two years ago, and you're sometimes horrified <laughs> at what you put out there. I mean, most people who started out posting photos to Instagram went filter crazy. And I think it's scaled back. We all had borders. <laughs> I mean, yeah, why, yeah. why put borders on it? <laughs> and noise and dust. and yeah. So much. Yeah. And then the, the, the Gaussian filters were just over the top. Well, just to hide the terrible cameras that were on our phones that I think, we uh, didn't yeah, quite that, realize. That's a good point. But I do, I do similar things when I'm grading as well that, you know, I, I find if, if you need to do a really serious grade, like you're fixing colors, it's usually because you made a mistake, which I do. I mean, I totally do. That's the only time that I'm really looking at scopes and waveforms and stuff. It's like, oh, that white wall is very yellow. Or, you know, I forgot to reset my white balance when I stepped outside. That's when I need to like dig in. But if you're in controlled lighting and you've sort of planned what you're doing, which is, you know, partly speaks to yeah. like your like filmmaking background. I think that it helps a lot. T- yeah. Also, tell me a bit about like what your background was. I mean, I know you made a movie that that went very well, and a lot of people I know loved. Yeah, so I have always been a filmmaker. I mean, ever since high school, I was in like the video production classes. It was the one thing that I excelled at, and it was the one thing that you couldn't force me to do. Like I, I, I had to do it. Like I'd be working on during lunch hours, during work study hours, during high school, just nonstop working on videos. Never really knew it would be a thing that I could do. I graduated high school in 2006. So at that time, 
it was the path was kind of you had to go through television or you had to go through studios you had to go these major routes that are now starting to break down and like the first dslr the canon 5d mark ii came out when i was in college Mm -hmm. i believe it was like my senior year or so and that just kind of totally changed the game but like the wave had already started with independent filmmakers and creators and obviously youtube was starting to i think was big around like 2006 or 7 so I, I was always into it, and I just got lucky in college starting a business as a videographer and working with clothing brands, and I shot a lot of weddings, like dozens of weddings, a couple of bar mitzvah intro videos. Mm-hmm. I never shot a bar mitzvah, but I did shoot the intro, <laughs> intro videos, videos okay. where it's like kids playing basketball and like dunking that on like more fun. NBA like, players. Like, tell a little story. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, and I would just go over the top and have these special effects with like flames on the baseball bat, but like... Because I loved it. And I was like always trying to learn new things and doing Andrew Kramer tutorials and just trying to learn as much as I could to get people to ask, like, how did how did you do that? Like, how, how you know what I mean? Trying to create something that would surprise people, that would get a reaction out of people. And then I started to get paid to do it, which was amazing. I never thought it was something that I would ever be able to do as a freelancer. And then those first jobs, making $100, maybe $400 for a video, even if I was making $8 an hour in the end, probably less because I just poured myself into these videos, it kind of proved that to myself that I could do it. And then from there, it was moving home to live with my parents, trying to start this business over the course of about four to six years, really developing some pretty great clients and working with a lot of tech and startup companies and making more money and helping to work my way out of debt. And then I had gotten to the point where I was like, okay, I'm doing well. I've paid off a lot of debt. I'm, I've, I think that I'm, I've achieved like a certain level of skill as a filmmaker and a storyteller, but only for three minute, maybe 10 minute videos tops. I want a bigger challenge and I want to create my first feature length documentary, which is when I set out to make minimalism a documentary. That's very early to tackle a feature. I mean, I, I, I'm. Still, I'm older than you now, and you were younger than me, than me then, and I'm still feeling like I'm not ready for a feature. I think it it's was a lot to bite off. I think it was being naive is like the good thing, right? It's not knowing what I was getting into, right. and because I legitimately had to do everything. I mean, the production stuff or producing the documentary and lining up the interviews, I didn't have to do a majority of that stuff. But when it came to shooting and editing, it was just me. Like a lot of people think it was like a crew there, but it was just me, a Kino Flow light kit a Canon C300, the original one. I purchased that just before. I actually like leased it out, 0% financing for two years. Just because I was like, I need this to be, talk about gear. I was like, I want to make this thing as good as it could be. And I don't want to shoot it on a Canon 5D. So, you know, I got the gear and then just nonstop shooting for a couple years and editing and going back and forth and then not having any plan for how we were going to get it out there. But just knowing that, it was an interesting story. It was a movement we had seen with people on blogs and resonated with millions of people. And just saying, I think this is something that will resonate with even more if we can put it out in this format. And and we lucked out. <laughs> like yeah. honestly, like we didn't expect it to go anywhere. But the fact that even getting on Netflix alone was like an accomplishment for us. Totally. Yeah. And is there a reason that you didn't dive right back into another feature right after that? I mean, yeah, it sucked. Yeah. <laughs> it was tough. It yeah. was really hard. How long was it? How long was the time that you spent working on it? It was about. I think it was 2014 to 2016 is when. Like 2014 is when we started, and then 2016 is when we stopped. It's a big commitment. And I was working on other freelance projects, and I did have a business, and we. I was going. Back back and forth between that and then eventually actually midway in in there I did start another documentary which is called Design Disruptors 
which I did finish, but that was a client project. So a client was like funding this documentary. So there, there was a lot going on. There was a lot of time invested. And then towards the final sprint of it, maybe two to three months, it was just every day, 10 hours at least, editing. I was doing the sound effects. I was, you know, finding flag sound effects online and then pulling it in to like every single, I was just obsessed with this. And I probably went too far yeah. where I'm like, nobody's gonna notice the flag, Matt. Just keep going. <laughs> just put your head down and finish this project. But then you get to the point where you're like, this is my only first documentary I'm ever going to make. Like, this is my one shot to really make this film what it could be. And that's how I've kind of applied to every video I make. It's like, I have to put everything I have into it. And luckily it worked out. But yeah, it was it was about two years of work from start to finish. And like, I think the biggest lesson I learned was the value in partners. And there's the accountability there where we're all making sure that we're doing the work and we're making sure we're finishing on our deadlines but then obviously people who can have complementary skills uh, and like I, I didn't know anything about distribution or marketing or putting this out there but luckily my producers did yeah no I I can test that too I mean my wife does all the hard work in our business in <laughs> yeah. there. I means that I have to know about a lot of things that I wouldn't otherwise so, yeah uh, yeah no it's it, having the right people around you and kind of like building at least a little community of support I also feel like when I look back at what I was doing young, like, you know, college, things didn't get interesting for me until I met some other people doing interesting creative work. And if I hadn't met them, I probably would have just kept, I don't know, like screwing around and not doing anything great. Like Mm. it can be so helpful to have just a few other people that are also excited about that same work. Like that can be more than education or anything else. It's just like find somebody to do something with, you know, like don't try to do, well, you can try to do it all on your own. Yeah, it can yeah. be very. It can be very helpful. Yeah, like I, I feel like I mean I've built my career on just doing things by myself stubbornly, <laughs> like moving my uh, furniture from in my one apartment into the next by myself because I was being stubborn and I didn't I couldn't <laughs> find anybody that would be willing to help me and I didn't have the money to pay for somebody to to do it. But there is an energy of like working and collaborating with other people that I learned through my freelance work when I would hire one, two, three people to just come out and help me on shoots. It's it's exciting. It's fun. There's you know if something weird happens, you have somebody to laugh with about it, and there's kind of this shared experience together. And when you find the right people to work with, it's hard to go back to just doing everything by yourself. <laughs> so a thing you speak a lot about and are kind of known for is like minimalism as a concept and as a lifestyle and a way of life. Can you give me the basic one, two, three of uh, how you suggest other people look at this topic? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think the one thing is a lot of people have misconceptions about minimalism and, and just based on the word, which is, I think, a good thing. It gets people interested in it. It gets right. people to click on my videos to be like, oh, what is this minimalism thing? <laughs> yeah. But then I think, then you have the side of it where a lot of people are like, we'll watch a video and say, well, that's not minimalist. Like, I have more stuff than he does. <laughs> but essentially, minimalism is just making more intentional decisions with the things that we bring into our life and also how we spend our time. And oftentimes, those two are related. So for me, I just want to... The, the biggest benefit that I received from minimalism was just redefining my idea of success. So like I always thought I had to just accumulate all the things. I had to get the car, the house, the white picket fence. And I had to actually get to this place where I had all the stuff before I could be happy. But then minimalism 
came to me. It was I was watching Last Call with Carson Daly, and I saw Tom Shadyac uh, was on the show talking about his story, how he had everything, and he decided that this, he actually didn't want it all. He's like, I don't need this 10,000-square-foot mansion. So he decided to give it up and move into a trailer park. And I was like, that's crazy. This dude like directed these massive comedies with Jim Carrey, and he has millions of dollars, and he's living in a trailer park. And it was just kind of like took me outside of the path that I was on and made me think twice about where I was heading. And I just realized I actually don't need that stuff. Like I don't need to get to this place until I can be happy. I have enough stuff to be happy right now. That doesn't mean that I'm not ambitious, I'm not driven, and I don't want to actually accomplish things. It means that I can be more intentional with where I want to head and I can focus on the right things. So where it like, for a lot of people, it starts out with looking at the stuff in your life and the things that you're buying and the cluttered closet you have and the drunk drawer you have. I think once you get past all that stuff, it's really about figuring out how do you fill your time from there on out if you're not just wasting it buying stuff. Yeah, I mean, is there a point that like, so if your paychecks exponentially increase over your life and you just, you have the money to do what you want, would you still be setting those same boundaries of like, I still would only want my house to get this many square feet or I'd still only want this many t-shirts in my drawer. Like, do you have sort of mental hard limits of like, no matter what I could have, there's these areas that I wouldn't want to grow beyond. Yeah, the funny thing about being in a relationship is that I'm not allowed to make those decisions by myself. <laughs> but I think it actually, so my uh, partner Natalie is not a minimalist, but I think that actually has a positive dynamic on our relationship mm-hmm. where we're both re- very respectful of each other and of what each of us wants. But it just takes a little bit more work to to find something that it's like a Venn diagram and it's a very small middle ground of where we can like have things that overlap of like, oh, I like that couch. And like it took us like four months to find a couch, six months to find a dining room table that we both liked. But we both are respectful enough to know that we can take time getting to those decisions. And I don't think I could even live in a tiny house. And, you know, we, we live in the real world too where we're living in LA. It's very expensive to buy a house. So even owning a house, period, is potentially not in the cards for us. Even if we had like millions of dollars in LA, that's that's like, <laughs> it's still not yeah, enough. Right, yeah. yeah, but I mean, um, for me, it's just being thoughtful and just understanding that, hey, if we ended up getting a bigger house, that means that we got to fill it with more stuff. It means that it's going to cost more to heat it. It's gonna, There's a lot more that comes with it than what may initially meet the eye. So for us, it would just be, be intentional and say, hey, what do we really need? And it may be easier on us if we actually had a smaller house, a smaller footprint. Yeah, I have some of that dynamic balance with my wife too, where she's she's a bit more of a maximalist. <laughs> but <laughs> there's times that I could just kind of sit there reading reviews of every single couch on Amazon and weighing the benefits and end up not buying a couch for four years. And sometimes it's helpful to have that person to push you like, that's the nice one. I'm like, okay, you're right. <laughs> it's the nice one. Yeah. But it's funny because even even in talking about like gear decisions and when you watch like review videos and it's like, should I buy this or not? It's like kind of a, a funny like left out section about it is that there's usually other things that play in your life hmm. than just like how badly do you want this <laughs> one product in front of you? Like there's more to consider. Like something I've talked about before is that a lot of a lot of people write in when I do a tech review of a certain product and they're like, is it worth it? Should I buy this? Should I get this? Should I, I have this phone. Should I upgrade to this phone? Everyone is so different that to ask a YouTuber that is already to be kind of missing a point, I think. Mm. I, I feel like there's this big important step of like, 
you need to understand your situation pretty well and an outsider isn't going to. Like, is $1,000 impossibly expensive for a phone to you? Or is it like, oh, that's not, that's not a big challenge because I happen to have enough money to buy one. And yeah, I, I just feel like it's, it's like this kind of missed point because YouTube videos are relatively short. Yeah, I think that there, there's an amazing service that you and other YouTubers do in creating videos about certain products because it means that I don't have to go out and buy something to try it out or go to the store to check it out because I can find somebody that I trust, watch their review of the new iPhone and say, hey, is this really something that I want to buy? But then at the end of the day, you have to make the decision. And it's, I get those emails too. From I got somebody, an email today from somebody who was asking me if, I should, if they should buy such and such lens. They were explaining what they currently have and what like, lens and camera they should be getting. And for me, I, I was like, well, are you making money from it yet? And, I'm, and really, if you're trying to make a profession out of it and you have a camera and a lens and some gear, like enough to make your film or to take your photos... Make money first. <laughs> Make money before you start to continue to reinvest because it's not the camera or the lens that's the problem. It's the fact that you haven't built relationships, you haven't found your first client, and that is a really tough, muddy place to be. I grinded out for a very long time on Craigslist and just finding whatever project I could get and then just continuing to deliver to the few that actually would just throw me a bone and let me work on their project for like $100. But when you're doing it professionally, I think you should always see them as reinvestments. And I'm all about reinvesting in the new gear. I think it is something you have to decide for yourself. But I think people miss this point where they think that the gear is going to lead to new business. I really like the conversation I had with Caleb Logic a couple episodes mm-hmm. back, who you know as well, yeah. that about when he bought his RED camera. And just the, the anecdote of like buying something bigger and professional because it feels like that will bring you the bigger professional clients and realizing like your business doesn't become a different business because you bought something new. You still need to have a relationship with the type of clients that a red camera matters to and that, yeah. you know, that it actually will truly like either elevate your work or bring you like, let you get some jobs that you might have had otherwise. But if you aren't missing out on jobs because of that gear, like that, even at a lower level than red, like if you're worried about, do I need to move from a crop sensor cannon to a full frame cannon? You know, like will it really impact your work in a way that your clients would appreciate, or will it move you to the next level of of who you're working with? Yeah, I think that you always have to be asking yourself, why am I making this purchase, and maybe putting some distance between yourself and the purchase. And I've made mistakes. <laughs> I well, oh, we all. Have. I would say, yeah, like I've definitely made mistakes. I mean, I bought a Red Epic W probably a little over two years ago. So I was at a point where I was ready to invest in my next camera, and I was planning on doing nothing but freelance client work, and I was trying to push into more higher end client work. To be honest, would my clients notice the difference? Some of them are getting smarter. Some of them know, oh, they got a red. Oh, mm-hmm. I heard they shot Lord of the Rings on that. Like Some of them know. But for the most part, especially the tech clients that I had, nobody really cared. Yeah. And, and I actually just saw a recent video recently on, it's interesting about the, the rental market and how just prices are going down and down and down. So if you're expecting to be right. able to rent out that red, you're probably not going to make any money off of it, like a couple hundred dollars for a day rate, where three years ago you can make $1,000 for a day rate. But I thought that for me, I was like, I want to just continue to invest in quality. I have the money for it. Let me do this. Like it's always worked out in the past when I've invested in new gear. 
But then within six months, I had decided to radically shift my business model <laughs> and not make any more money and like just that's, give up client that's work. That's a big shift, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, get, I gave up client work and I decided to focus on creating a podcast and creating original films and making YouTube videos. And no offense to those that make that use a Red Epic W on their YouTube videos, I just don't have enough storage. And for me, it slowed down my computer. The, the expensive computer I had to buy to be able to manage those files would slow down and freeze up all the time. And now this thing that most people would die to have that think that they need, they think they need the red to get the shot they and, that, and make the film that they want, I realized it was actually slowing me down. So I ended up selling it and replacing it with a Canon C200, which is a fraction of the price. Oh, I just spent the last episode talking about how badly I need to upgrade to the C200. Yeah, so. C200 is a great camera. <laughs> but it's it's compared to the RED, it is so much quicker for me in post-production. I can shoot 4K all day. Do you usually shoot compressed? Um, as shoot in... Wrong? Raw versus the... I don't shoot raw, yeah. no. Because raw, is, the file sizes are actually Same comparable red. <laughs> to red. Yeah. So for me, it's like I'm making YouTube videos and I can still shoot them in 4K. Quality's great. I can have an extended battery that lasts like two hours. So if I'm doing an interview, I can just hit them rolling and I can even put them on autofocus. I usually, for the most part right now, I don't have anybody helping me. So I just have, you know, similar to this setup right now where it's like you just set up the cameras and you're good to go. And for me, having two Canon C200s is cheaper than having one red epic w and for me that math works yeah. out pretty well yeah, for sure <laughs> yeah well so a topic that i've always wanted to like do a video on or do something about and since i have delayed it let's talk about it now is the idea of buying like i like it when there is a clear the best of a product category to buy right now you thanks for bringing them over you brought yeah. over the uh sure sm7b mics which are kind of in that category for podcasting right now it's mm-hmm. like look you want the good one you go, you go get this. Mm-hmm. In, in other places, I mean, uh, the lights lighting us right now are Aperture 120Ds. And it's like, if you go ask people that have used them, they'll be like, just get that one. Like, it's the best single source continuous light right now. Just mm-hmm. get it, and you'll be happy. And you're like, okay, I'll buy it, and you probably won't regret it. Yeah. Turntables. So like a great example, like a definitive example, like a Technics 1200. I don't know if it's the best turntable or not. I don't listen to records. Mm-hmm. But it has this status of like, this is the turntable of all time. You'll be safe buying it. I always feel like I want just all those things around me to be those ones. But the reality of like things you're talking about is that there may not be that kind of answer. Like you don't realize that once you buy that red, you're buying uh, these cartridges that cost a thousand bucks each for storage, or you buy the Shure SM7B and then you also need to buy a cloud lifter because the levels are so low. Mm-hmm. And you know, I don't know. It's like I love that idea of having the one thing to aim for and then you stop buying anything else. I don't know how true it is. Well, the idea of buy it once, I like as well. And there are certain things that, lenses, for instance. I bought lenses five, six years ago, like the 50 millimeter that I I said that I needed to have. And it was actually turned out to be a good investment. And while maybe it didn't make that specific video that I'm thinking about any better than it would have been, it is something that I continue to use to this day. So I think investing in good glass, investing in a microphone like these, if you if you plan to continue to do podcasting for a long time, are good investments. And the idea is that you buy it once and that maybe you repair it down the road, but it's going to last you a lot longer than if you decide to get something cheap and just say like, oh, well, I'll, I'll reinvest and I'll get it down the road. I mean, obviously, if, you, if you're limited on budget, if you don't have a lot of money and you have to just buy... You don't have to start there. You don't have to start there, but I think that it's it's better to invest in high quality that's going to last a long time. Knowing that cameras 
likely it, it just seems like we're on a cycle where it's like two to four years depending on you know what you're Which doing brand and what yeah yeah like for me though like since it's a business and since i like to continue to reinvest and i like the gear there are added benefits every two to four years that i see that are worth it so whether it's just higher resolution or it's slow motion there's like different features that i think are like well that's that's cool and while it's not going to be make or break i think over this course of you know, if we never upgraded, if I never upgraded from my Canon XHA1 or my can, my even my Canon 5D Mark II, I kind of would be left behind. And while I think I could make great films, I don't think I would be as happy about yeah. them. Well, and you made a video specifically about upgrading that I highly recommend everybody. I'll put in the show notes. That's the conversation that needs to be had. I think it's like a, it was a really thoughtful way of discussing it. And I think because uh, I, well, I think that people might look at the minimalist filmmaker or anybody who's a minimalist and think that they're anti-upgrades. And like I made that video because I had just upgraded my phone and I was like, well, and I was kind of at the Apple store and like people don't recognize me often, but every once in a while they do. And I was like, oh God, what if somebody sees me like at the (laughs) Apple store buying a new phone? Like I'm a fraud. And I'm like, no, this is like who I am. I buy a new phone every two, three years, maybe. People recognize me and they're like, you met Tiavella? I'm like, no, sorry. (laughs) It's the other bearded man. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But it's, it's, I think it's, it's okay to upgrade. Like I like technology. I geek out about it. But I try not to just get too obsessed with it. I imagine it must be tough for you because it's part of your job. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's I just mean, to know the stuff. That's what I tell my wife is that uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we need the new one for a review. But, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's like an important thing to keep in mind when you're watching all these YouTube reviews is that the people reviewing them, like, they were going to get it anyway, whether or not it was any good. So when they tell you that it's great, like, it's a very different context, you know, and mm. you have to kind of keep their perspective, my perspective in mind is it always great are there any really i mean mean, i'm curious are there any like big letdowns where you're like oh i thought this was going to be something i usually choose things that i already am expecting to be pretty good so fortunately that leads me and and i don't generally make videos about things i hate because like i'm bored of them before i'd want to spend a 24 48 hours making a video about it. Like, if it's just not very good, I'm like, I just don't want to talk. Like, I don't care. And it would have to be really, really bad to make a PSA. Right, yeah. It's got to be like, warning. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) this phone explodes or whatever, right? (laughs) Like, that's that that can be worth talking about. But yeah, yeah, I mean, typically it's like, I've already done a bit of research myself. And so I'll include the negatives because everything has problems. There's nothing that's perfect. I mean, like, great examples like new iPhones. I really love the cameras. I mean, they are the best ever. I prefer them over what uh, Google's doing right now. But there's all these times that your photos look weird and kind of bad. Mm. Like there, it's there's a lot you have to know about it. Like, and same with you know, I'm thinking of going to the C200 for a cinema camera. I have to keep in mind, it's like you know, there's also all these downsides. Like it's not stabilized. You got to have wider lenses. You got to like be aware of all these trade offs. Pretty that, big. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not. It's not a straight. Upgrading isn't always upgrading, even if it's more expensive. Sometimes it's side grading. Yeah, that that happens. That happens a lot. I think it's just you continually have to. I, I think make sure that you're not just making these purchases and getting overly excited and just saying like, "Oh, I need the new thing." And it's 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 definitely hard to do. But I think you guys make it a little bit easier just by <laughs> clearing through the bullshit right. <laughs> and knowing what is really good versus what is the hype. Yeah, yeah. Do you watch many reviews? Like, do you get sucked into the vortex of like YouTube 
Only when I'm ready to make a purchase. So I would say for like, if I'm really looking to say when I was looking into the C200, that's just all I did for a week, two weeks straight was just watch nothing but C200 review videos. We need more of them. I've watched them all already. Yeah, yeah. There's not that many to be honest. There's like six of them. Armando had a a really good one. So did uh, Caleb Wojcik who, I mean, Caleb did an awesome job where it was just a 30-minute breakdown, which nobody does videos that long breaking down a camera. But somebody, the specific person who wants that, like me... I'm so like, valuable. I'm like, oh my God, that's amazing. He's going through every single aspect of it and he's giving me like examples and actual footage shot with it. So for me, that helped out a lot. And then eventually you just have to get to the point where you're like, either I'm going to buy this thing, make this decision and get on with it, or I'm not going to do it. I've always wanted to do, I'm not going to do this. Anybody, anybody listening, I'm not doing it. But I've always wanted to do like a one hour iPhone review for the new one. Because mm. like there is that much to say about it. I mean, I can easily talk on a podcast for an hour about it. Like there's a lot to each new phone. Yeah. And if you rely on your phone really heavily, you know, it's easy to kind of make jokes about how addicted we are to our phone stuff. But like for a lot of us, it is critical to our work. It's at the center of like, how we do everything. And a lot of people will watch an hour worth of reviews. Mm. So I've always just thought it'd be fun to do a like. Just co- literally cover everything. Like if there's something to say, get it in the video. That, you might, you should do that. I think it'd be cool. Yeah. But it'd take a long time. Yeah, that's the thing is because it, it, it's not, I mean, you, otherwise you might as well just be recording a podcast. But I, yeah, I can't if you're talk. doing the hour, like you have to actually be really thoughtful that about it and role. plan it out. Yeah. I'm actually curious, when you're making your videos, do you plan out a lot of it. I know some of them are kind of travel. They seem like a little bit more on the fly. By the way, I don't know how- The, the on the fly is in effect. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah it's like yeah, usually yeah. like scripted-ish, you know, yeah. like on hit all these points. Oh, that's good. That's me too. Cause I'm like, I'm, a, I'm really bad at, I'm, I, I have to really like script and write out my videos and know exactly what I'm going to do. And even if it's on the fly, it's kind of like, I know, okay, okay, I want to talk about this so then it will fit in this place in the video. I find it very helpful that we scripted this whole conversation. It was time. good. I'm, I'm reading this from a teleprompter <laughs> Yeah, so right am now. I as well, for those that aren't watching the video. <laughs> it's just right behind you. Yeah. No, but I think that's always, that's, it's helpful to know because, I mean, it's, that's just one of those kind of, and not, not everybody has the personality to be able to just like kind of deliver on the fly. Like there's the Gary V's of the world and then there's me who I'm like, I need to actually think what I'm going to say. Yeah. You had to buy the way that you were about to jump into. I, feel I forgot like. what oh, it was okay. going to be about. I mean, yeah, I, I feel like the person that can really nail it is, I mean, Casey Neistat because he's, he's putting them out so often, I, can't, I don't think he's writing a script in the morning. The big challenge yeah. when you're recording like that Look, big location jumps, which I do as well. You know, I'm like, I'm here and then I'm over there and I'm continuing a sentence. Is it's very hard to remember the context of where you left off. So often I'm like, uh, it, 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 that becomes a challenge in the edit is to make there be any sort of continuous flow from one idea to the other. And it means that I usually have to record extra and multiple takes to make it align in any kind of with any fluidity yeah i I remember the by the way it's i'm impressed by you and others that that can do this that can like talk publicly in an airport (laughs) with the camera and like i'm like dude i get so nervous i've actually tried to do it once and i didn't use the footage because i just got too nervous and too camera shy i'm like everybody's watching me (laughs) it's not a skill it's a it's a decision to let people dislike you for that time because the thing is like people don't (laughs) like it it's not yeah it's not like you become like oh now everybody's cool with me doing it it's 
like they're looking at you and they are judging you. They're not thinking kind of <laughs> How do you thoughts. get out of your head though? That's like the thing that I find is so difficult is that <laughs> yeah, yeah. for me, I would just be in my head like, oh my God. And now they know that I screwed up and now they know that I'm going to do this take again. <laughs> well, or the same thing happens with like a lot of what I was doing more before YouTube is my wife has a fashion blog. So we're shooting like style photos just mm-hmm. in the streets and stuff. And People look a lot and like right. people think they are hilarious by saying photobomb and they don't realize that six other people did it. I, another video concept, I'm just going to give away all my video concepts right now, is yeah. doing a like etiquette when you see a photo shoot happening. Because <laughs> uh. the whole world thinks it's hilarious to say the same five jokes of like, get a photo of me. And then the next guy comes in like, want a photo of me? And it's like, <laughs> you don't know how many times I've heard this. Yeah. But that kind of like, the more you do that stuff, it just desensitizes you. It's like, I don't know who's recommended this, but it's an idea out in the wild of um, be, intentionally be rejected a certain amount because yeah. it just like lets you get used to it, stops hurting so much. Just like get rejected for things that you didn't even care about. It stings a little, but it kind of inoculates you against. Yeah, bigger I think ch- that's something that I need to probably do a little bit more of, just like kind of exposure therapy into that and that's, just do it for like it three hours in an airport talking to a camera. Like, I think I'm okay with it when I have somebody else helping me or I'm with Natalie. It really like, takes the edge so off. Like, I got a friend. See, yeah. I'm not just a loner. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a loser here. But it's funny because a lot of people watch the videos and it just, I mean, when I, I recently watched uh, the one video of you in the airport, I think it was maybe reviewing the bag actually that helped me with the peak design oh, bag yeah. that helped me out. And it's just like, everything looks normal. It looks natural, but I'm like- In reality. In your head, it's just gotta be chaos. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is really weird. And then also the amount of times that you start a sentence and then the announcement comes on on the PA and you're like- well, got to start that again, and yeah. it happens ten times. Then you don't even get the take, and you got to record it somewhere else. But uh, yeah, no, but yeah, yeah. That's what I actually decided to do. That one video, I was like, okay, it's going to be a voiceover. It's just yeah, going to be yeah. me walking oh, through the airport with no, a voiceover. Nobody knows how much easier voiceovers are than uh, like oh it just saves you on on whatever it is that. Yeah, you're but I think that you can overdo it, and I think that when you're trying to tell a story too, you're trying to have that balance of if you did an entire video with nothing but voiceovers, it could get boring. So it's nice to have those cutaways that are a little bit more in the moment. I want to talk to you more about gear because it's fun. Yeah. What are what are some things that you have bought that is just like no regrets? You know, like this was the right decision. Like what are some, and this is again, like with the context of it being you and everybody's different, what have you got that you're probably never going to update? A Belkin uh, phone holder for my car. Oh, okay. Have, I've always wondered which ones are good. Yeah, I uh, I, sh- I should have brought it up. But like it's, uh, <laughs> honestly, it's amazing. It's just it's the one that you actually put into the the vents mm-hmm. of the AC and it clamps right in. It's got like a little dual flip side so you can go for a thicker vent or a, a thinner vent. And then you can also go to the side. You can rotate it around. You can also pop it in with one hand so I can just take my phone and then just shimmy it to the side and push it in. Because there's these ones that are garbage that are like, like you have to like bring in the sides and I just don't have time for that when you're driving and or you you may be like just trying to pop it up while you're driving. For me, amazing purchase. I don't think I'm ever going to need to get a new one. I think it's built soundly. Yeah. I've already bought one that ended up in the garbage. So I know the, that's a, a good example of it. It's like, I still spent 30 bucks on it, but which yeah. I mean, it, it's what I wish the wire cutter really, really was. I mean, it's kind of their goal. They're like, look, we're just going to find you the one, like just like, we're going to review everything for you. Mm-hmm. You don't have to read the whole review. We're just going to tell you, like, go buy this one Belkin vent mount yeah, and <laughs> phone I th- holder. But but I feel like I, I just, I don't know. 
I've become a, they've become more of a normal review site lately. It feels mm. like. But. Yeah, I don't even know who they are. <laughs> I oh, okay. I haven't seen them. Wirecutters. I was just doing that thing. I was like, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, I do I that exactly all the time. What you're talking I've been doing about. that all day. <laughs> yeah. No, but I think uh, I think that's a good one. I, I'm I'm actually working on a video now where I don't know if I'm gonna. It'll be like an exclusive thing or just a, a video publicly, but just my five favorite physical products and that Belkin phone holder is definitely one of them. It's just I think really thoughtfully and high quality design is rare and it's something that we're looking for in everything. So that's definitely one. I started to this is not like the best product I've ever done, but I started to use a phone case. This is like a side tangent. Do you use phone cases? Yeah, I got one right in front oh, of you. Oh you do? I, I've never done it until I had to start putting my phones on camera all the time, oh. and I just there would be cracked phone every single time I would do it. So I started to do that as well. But yeah, I, in in terms of that, I, I'm going to make my recommendation of the Apple cases. Like the yeah, I think the, I have the, same the build on. Yeah. I mean, this is the leather. Uh, we, yeah, I have leather, and you have one. the silicone. But the, the fact that it, yeah, and it meshes totally with the camera. It's like I so much prefer. They're over, they're like overpriced. They're super expensive. But they feel the best by far yeah. compared to like the ten dollars ones. It's Can I ask you? Is this really lame? But I, I thought of this the other day, and I do it every once in a while where I'm trying not to use my screen as much. I'll flip the phone around. Oh no, no, no! That's a good life hack. Siri, oh. <laughs> <laughs> stop! Oh, maybe it's not such a good life hack. Yeah, no, terrible. No, but uh, so then, not only is it you're less likely to use your phone, right. but it's actually going to protect the screen more if you're walking around. That's true. Except the only thing is, then you've got the, when you move it, you should do it over a, a soft surface or somewhere that's not going to fall because taking it in and out is like a really high risk moment right? high risk moment like pop that's it a out. great point i never thought of that you have yeah you have to be very thoughtful about when you're doing it yeah the, the most likely time for me to break phones is when i'm reviewing them because i'll have five or six every pocket has two phones in it oh, no. and i'm like pulling one out and then another one out and I'm taking the same photo 15 times and that's when i'm going to probably drop a phone that's actually when i damaged it's the only big scratch on this phone like the rivet in my jeans mm. every public service announcement watch out for the rivets that hold your pockets in because the they stick out and they're sharp when you pull the phone on your pocket it's going to slide across you're a you're a front hands. pocket yes phone always placer. well i try to sometimes I used to do it ends back up pocket, in my back but the phones have gotten too big right. <laughs> the bo- oh, that was used that. to be a thing that only women would do was put the phone in the back pocket but i found that it was just my pants maybe my pants got too I tight i feel like i might damage i mean i'm sitting on it right now to feel it like i'm sort of afraid of like bending or something yeah. Know, yeah and also less stealable but yeah what let me ask you flip it around was there is there a product or something that you bought or tech gear that you bought that's like oh yeah i have a very long list <laughs> <laughs> it's like this is my job yeah I'll, yeah I'll just do videos all day long but um you know i i really like these mics that we're on the mix pre 3 is the audio device that i've got recently that is like the one or they're also mixed pre six is similar, but, but very, very good. So what stands out about this? Like, why would you get this versus an H six? Because the preamps in it are basically perfect. So when we were setting this up, we plugged in cloud lifters, which are, you know, amp- basically little preamps ish. They're mm-hmm. like passive preamps that make the signal louder coming out of these very, very quiet microphones. So that by the time it hits your recorder, you don't, you need to use the internal preamps, the more affordable zooms, especially the handheld ones, which is the H, H stands for handheld, their preamps will add a lot of noise as you crank them. So if you get to 100%, the gain past about like 80, 90% starts to get extra noisy. Mm-hmm. Most of the noise gets introduced at that top end. And that's how loud you need to turn up the zoom to make these mics heard. Yeah. The preamps in the mix pre or, or anything made by sound devices can go all the way up and will totally 
boost these loud enough to record them. So even if you didn't add anything in between, it would still be loud enough without like adding additional amps to it. That's nice because these the cloud lifters are a little bit annoying when you're setting up. Actually, yeah, the two of those are bigger than just the recording device. Yeah, and they're like you have to then have four XLR cables for two <laughs> microphones. Yeah. So yeah, totally. I can see that. That's cool. That's that's a good one. I, cameras are hard because they it doesn't last. Like if it's the best, it's only the best for. A week. Which is a great thing. Actually, that was the one thing I said in the upgrade video where, you know, a lot of people just give companies hard times about like creating and marketing products all the time, but they have to. If they don't continually improve and upgrade their tech every couple of years, then they're going to eventually go out of business and people are going to switch from Canon to Sony or back and forth. And yeah, totally. They get it, hit just as hard if they do or don't upgrade. People yeah, I think the so. problem is obviously when it's just we changed the color <laughs> yeah, right. or we made the screen. Fins. Yeah, exactly. Like I think that happens quite a bit and you just see it in every one of these big talks or reveals. Like everything is a amazing game changing moment. And I feel like these days we have less and less of those moments that are really like, ah, like, wow, that's amazing. So it can, there can definitely be a lot of hype around it. I have another idea I want to, to talk to you about because I think you fit a little bit into it. Actually, um, this is my first time saying this sentence that I think is going to be this defining idea. Like, I kind of want to build it into an, a concept. I've talked a bit on the show about creative literacy in different fields. So that, like, I think it's really valuable for people to understand audio and video and photo and writing and illustration. If they can, as many as you can, mm-hmm. and of course, we all are going to be bad at a few. I'm not a good writer. I do my best. I'm not good at it. So I don't do very much of it. And, you know, mm. same thing. You may be uh, not feel comfortable on camera. So you would rather stick to stills, whatever. Like, you don't need to do all of them. But I think that the benefits in our world of learning many of these skills are really, really huge. Like, very disproportionate to what I think people understand of how powerful it can be to be skilled at communicating through. Any medium that can be shared on the internet. So my, my, my phrase for it, I'm going to run it by you, tell me if it like makes sense, is I'm kind of like thinking of it as being a, a, a full-stack creative. Mm. And that's a developer term. Like a full-stack developer means you understand how to write from the beginning, like from the database layer to a back-end layer to a front-end layer. And like you can kind of create the whole product on your own. So I don't know. That's kind of the yeah, same. Or a unicorn. I think they call them unicorns. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. That's or maybe the, uni- the unicorn might be like the programmer slash designer. Yeah, I'm not sure, yeah. but, but, but Something I guess like it's that. just yeah, when yeah. you have when you're multifaceted, when you have uh, a lot of skills, and it's a very developed idea in the tech realm. Yeah. Like these, I, we've we've discussed it for a long time. I just want to start pushing it as like a creative idea, and it's something. And I'm looking at you because mm-hmm. I feel like you are doing that. You're making podcasts. You're making videos. You're you're present across different platforms, and you're kind of not afraid to branch out to them. So I don't know, I'm curious about like how you got there and how you think about it. Yeah, I love that. That's uh, it's a great idea and I think for me it's what I've called the new self-reliance where I mean self-reliance in the past used to mean one thing, it was like hunting, gathering and making shelter, but today it's our our world is digital and as a creative you need to take ownership over the skills that you're going to learn. And you can't expect to be a filmmaker and be able to hire a graphic designer or an animator every time that you make a video or when you have this really clever idea. Right. So for me, it was about, okay, I'm going to have to do everything myself. And it's not doing everything all at once. It's You pick up things here and there. There's amazing tutorials online to learn After Effects and motion graphics. And... 
I get just good enough in some of these fringe things. Like I'm not an amazing a- animator, but I can keyframe, I can use After Effects pretty well, and I can get enough done if I if I have an idea that I want to execute on and I don't have $3,000 for my YouTube videos to yeah. pay for an animator. And I think that goes for photography. Like, dude, think about what we do. Like everything, everything can come into even a YouTube video design, animation, filmmaking, photography with the thumbnail, for sure, yeah. uh, the writing, even if it's just writing the the title and the description for the video. But of course, you're likely going to have to write some of the content within the video. So I think you're you're dead on with having to really take all of these because this that's the whole idea about getting past the gatekeepers. You can do it all yourself. I mean, you could, yeah, hire people to do it. But in the beginning, you're not going to be able to have the money to do it. And you'll probably, I think, be better off, even if you eventually become very specific in I am just a director, I think it's good to understand what it takes to design something, what it takes to make something. It's actually a great example is like directors. You know, I, I think that when I work with people that run projects for me, I really appreciate them understanding the technical requirements of my end of the job, you know. So a good example actually somebody that's been a guest a few times is Kelly Thompson, who was my boss at iStock Photo. And he had a background in design and development. And I was doing front end design. And having somebody that is telling me what to do know what's involved in doing it makes a world of difference mm. compared to a boss that is sort of like hands off with it. Maybe they just have a business background and they're trying to direct you but don't get what's involved. So, you know, I want to also extend that circle to like if you're not currently a creative, I mean, well, you might not be listening to the show. But, right. <laughs> but you know, if, you, if you're just like a, a business owner, you're just trying to sell widgets, developing the skill set, again, same thing. It's like if you don't have the budgets already to have people do it, just having the, the lowest level of understanding of this is super valuable. I mean, this is like a Gary Vee thing of like just tell the story. Mm-hmm. But I think becoming more and more comfortable with it and comfortable and confident with really creating something good, you know, that like passes as legit, I don't know, like it can go so far in whatever it is that you want to do. Yeah, and I think it's it's about being focused for a good amount of time, so not just giving up on something right away. So if you're if you want to get into filmmaking, I think it's worthwhile to really dedicate yourself to really understanding how to use the camera, how to shoot, how to make B-roll and how to cut and do all that stuff. Those are like two huge skills right there to learn by themselves. And then as you progress, you can start to bring on these other things. You can bring on the after effects, you can bring on the design and build these skills because they're all going to eventually complement each other. And dude, even now to this day, I mean, I had gone from a place of doing everything myself to eventually hiring sound engineers, cinematographers and editors to help me out on every project on my freelance work because we had a budget. And then getting to the point where I decided to make a change to go to all original content. And all of a sudden I didn't have a budget anymore. And it was just me again (laughs) doing all this stuff by myself. So it's invaluable, and that's where the self-reliance comes in. It's if you hit hard times or if you decide to do something really risky where you have a limited amount of runway, it's it's so valuable to be able to have those skills. A lot of people think that there's like this myth of job security where people ha- think that they're secure in having their job just because somebody's paying them, just because they have a contract with somebody. But you can be fired at any time. But you if you have the skills, if you're really good at what you do, if you're a world-class filmmaker or photographer, you can always find gigs. You can always get work. 
even if you get fired from your job. So it's like developing these skills aren't going to go away. You're not going to forget how to be a photographer once you learn it. Yeah, and do it, you can, basically everybody needs this at this point. Like I was just saying, I mean, like whatever it is your business was now involves producing some kind of content probably. Like yeah. most businesses are, are making something now. Yeah, my sister, she's a breathwork teacher here in LA. It's probably about the most hipster gig that you can have. I don't know what that is. What's a breathwork? Breathwork. So it's it's a very like new, new agey type thing. We'll, we'll I, all be doing it next I week. I should really yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> she had me do it once or twice. She did. It, I did it once on the podcast where it's just this practice of focusing on your breath. It's it, it, In its essence, it's a meditation. So you're just breathing I think like deeply and then exhale twice very quickly. And you just do that for like 30 to 40 minutes. And for a lot of people, it can be a very transformative and emotional experience because there's a lot of like gratitude and different things that she'll, she'll work through as you're breathing. But she used to be a graphic designer. So she then used those skills of being a designer and understanding how to like create a brand identity and a logo and all that stuff. And then even being able to create a beautiful Instagram account, she then moved that to her breathwork practice. And so like these skills can be repurposed. And like you said, if you're simply a business owner, being a great designer or being a great photographer can help you out a ton in the beginning. Yeah. Because even if you're not designing your logo, like if you don't have the skills to do the the really challenging bits or you can't do your TV commercial, being able to do your Instagram content mm. well is is helpful or being able to just design your email newsletters, you know, like if you can at least handle the low level stuff, it goes a long way. Yeah. And I think the the challenge then for those people, the full stack creatives is knowing when to outsource, not even outsource, when to hire people to help out, when to have people take over certain jobs. And I think that's, that's going to be like the big question. And it's, that's still my big, (laughs) for me too. I still struggle with it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, I've, if I can do it myself, why would I pay somebody a couple thousand dollars a month to do it for me? And the whole idea, for me at least, is to just focus continually on the things that I love to do. And if there's things that, uh, that maybe are a little bit of a struggle or maybe could be more efficient if I hired somebody else, then it's worth it. And also, I did get this from Gary Vee where he's like, if, if, if you think that you're ready to make a hire or just bring somebody on, you're ready. Make the decision, make a mistake up front, do it quickly, and then learn from it. And then if it's not working out, fire him. <laughs> Yeah. And then hire somebody new. Right. I think so often we get in this trap of only I can do it, or if I hire somebody, they're going to screw up. And you're like, yeah, they probably are. But that's you're there to help them, onboard them, get them to understand how you like the work to be right. done. And I think that you could also you also have to know that you don't have to infinitely scale up. You don't have to have a team of 300 people. Right. Yeah. If you have maybe one, two other people working with you, maybe that's where you stop. Yeah, that was another part of our conversation with Caleb is that desire as a independent film producer. Like, so, you know, when, when we have clients, we're working for direct with the client. There isn't an agency giving us storyboards ahead of time and we're like helping them develop the content. Then we shoot the whole thing and edit the whole thing and that's it. And there's just our, our small teams. And it can be very... It's easy to be jealous of the big Hollywood crews where like you've you've got a grip and a gaffer and a best boy and they're all running around carrying stuff for you and setting up lights and the results are noticeably more beautiful. Comes it comes out a bit better. But uh, you know, be kind of be careful what you wish for because there's there's challenges that you might not see ahead of time before you get there. And and an example being, you know, I think the margins on on your work change as well. Like owning your own camera means that you're including that in your 
your kit rate mm-hmm. versus renting and then all that money's going to the rental house. And like there's all these little things that like, yeah, you 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 may think that like getting to the biggest level is what you want, but you know, do you really want to just be running franchises or do you want to you know, be doing the work. It's something to think about. Yeah, and it, 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 there's a lot of there's a lot of downsides to going that big, and it, those productions certainly move very slow. And I, I, it would be crazy to even imagine the kind of like Hollywood structure where they're putting out like content every single week all year round. Like they can do stints. Like they'll do okay. Here's our ten episodes for the show. Right. But I mean, obviously, because it takes a lot of time and work and all that stuff. But it's also because there's a lot of logistical stuff and lawyers that they have to go through and a, and a long, slow process where I think there's a lot of freedom in being able to create quickly and put it out online. And that's just something that I've been thinking about a lot lately too, is like a lot of people feel like they have to make the feature film. And I'm like, well, why, do you have to make the feature film? Is there something else that you could do? Is there another platform that you could create for? Could you actually make a feature film and just put it on YouTube? A lot of people just kind of have these expectations that they have to do it a certain way because that's what other people are doing. I, th- I think every filmmaker and actor that isn't getting hip to the power of like YouTube or, you know, really getting invested in social media is missing out so big. I mean, like I, I think Will Smith isn't getting enough credit for how how obvious obviously a good idea it is for him to like take full control of his brand because now like the most people will ever see of Will Smith in, in 2019 is his vlogs that he's putting out. Mm-hmm. Like that will be their whole awareness of him. And so no matter how many TMZ headlines come out about him, people are going to like know him so much better. And any actor that isn't like taking that control of their public persona is just like, just missing a big opportunity. I'm not saying you have to, but like it's so powerful and so valuable no matter how famous and successful you are. Like this era of free distribution and yeah i think it comes back to this idea of people looking at youtube as a certain thing and looking at youtube creators and putting them in a certain box and then you could have somebody like youtube uh sorry not like youtube like will smith (laughs) come to youtube and they understand like him and his team understand that a view is a view and if you know he gets 10 million views on a video that he releases on youtube what's the difference between doing that on another format or another medium. Yeah, yeah. I think... Maybe money, but... <laughs> <laughs> Small differences. Yeah. I but mean, I mean, obviously, there's tons of ways yeah. to monetize on YouTube. Yeah, of course. And I, I mean, I think we're about to hit an era where that changes. I mean, when everybody that's growing up right now has YouTube celebrities as their real celebrities. Like, I mean, for me, my, mm. my realist celebrities are podcasters that I've been listening to for years, and I've heard them speak for hundreds of hours. And like, that's who... I'm the most like excited about and interested in and like would love to meet in person. And there's a whole generation of people that like that is the the their most important celebrities is the PewDiePie's and Logan Paul's of the Dude, world. I think that the the 5 to 10 year shift I think is going to be kind of crazy. Yeah, cuz those people are all going to start working at agencies and they're going to start being in power and they're going to start making decisions yeah. and you know. Yeah. Yeah, I think that and then I think that's why you need to take ownership over what you're making and not you know even though we say all the gatekeepers are gone a lot of people see gatekeepers in Netflix and Hulu and getting their projects signed like everyone wants to know how did you get your documentary on Netflix and 
the the truth was that we didn't need to get it on Netflix. Like if you make a good enough film or a good enough project, mm-hmm. you can release it independently and you'll probably do pretty well, especially if you've already created an audience that is interesting in buying it. So it's great to get it on Netflix. It's great to get it on nah, Hulu, Amazon. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's like it's 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 great to to get it on a platform who they're willing to pay you money and hopefully also give you a lot of eyeballs. But you can have enough money on YouTube. You can have enough money creating content independently. It's just I think sometimes people just think I don't know. I think that's the whole idea. That's where even minimalism can play a part. Where it's just understanding that. I don't need a million dollars for my film. If I can do it my way, if I can retain full ownership over it and still enough people can see it, then a lot less would be, I'd be happy with. What are you going to do next? Well, I mean, not today. Yeah. I was, yeah. Well, we're actually going to a show tonight, but um, I think for me, my project over the past year was getting YouTube, just creating making a living off of yeah. creating content man, you've full done time. you've done great with it too like congrats on a very successful year thanks man that was yeah it was i had a runway i had about a year or two and it took i mean i guess i had about a little over two years and it took me a year until i started year and a half until i started making money on youtube and that feels really good it feels like i've built enough momentum there where now i'm gonna bring somebody on to help me out with my videos and maybe some feature projects down the road. But at this point, I'm just kind of like enjoying the ride and trying to tell stories as best I can. Cool. Well, you're doing a great job of it. Everybody loves you. Uh, Where can we find (laughs) you on the internet? Uh, You can find me at mattdiavella.com. There's all the links to all my stuff there. And all the links are also in the show notes. Thanks for coming, Matt. Cool, dude. Thank you. 